two boys, one from a brethren background and the other a Roman Catholic, agreed to visit each other's church. And so the first boy visited the Roman Catholic church, and at the end of the Mass, his friend said to him, so what do you think about it? And he said, well, the building was impressive, and the rituals were also impressive, but it's not for me. The next Sunday, they visited the Brethren Chapel, a little storefront church. At the end of the service, the other boy said to the Roman Catholic friend, what do you think about it? He said, it was interesting, but you have no priest. Now that observation, if it were true, that Christians have no priest, would condemn our faith to sheer folly and utter bankruptcy. Scripture, on the other hand, tells us that we have not just any priest, but a great high priest, so much so that we need no human priest, no earthly priest. We have a great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, this subject of the priesthood of Jesus occupies a prodigious, massive space in the literature of Scripture and in particularly the book of Hebrews. Hebrews has much to say about Christ and his priesthood. And this discussion, this discourse on the priesthood of Christ occurs in a larger discussion on the superiority of Jesus Christ. For the writer of Hebrews compares and contrasts Jesus with the best of Jewish religions. He takes the prophets and elders of old and says Jesus is superior to them. We know that in Jewish religion there was a fascination with angels. So the writer of Hebrews says Jesus is even superior to angels. He's superior to the greatest men in the Jewish faith, particularly Moses, and superior to Aaron. And in chapter 7, from which we read, the writer has been at pains to tell us that Jesus Christ is greater than the entire Old Testament priesthood. That Jesus is a great high priest. He has shown us so far that Jesus is superior to the Old Testament priest because of their inadequacy, that they could not bring perfection. They could not lead us to God. He shows that Jesus was superior to these Old Testament priests because his ministry of priest as high priest turns upon an indestructible life. A massive statement made and continued to be made in the chapter that is before us. He also tells us that Jesus is greater than the Old Testament priest because he brings a better hope through which we draw near to God. But our concern, our brief, our task, is with the final section of chapter 7, verses 20 to 28. There, the writer is going to conclude his argument that Jesus is greater and 
better and superior to all of the Old Testament priests. And he does this then by emphasizing three great realities regarding the priesthood of Christ. And so I want you then to follow me as I move through these verses in chapter 7, verse 20 to 28. How does he tell us that Christ is greater than the Old Testament priests? First, he says that Jesus' high priesthood is superior to all because of God's solemn oath. That's the first point he makes in this section 20 to 28. That Jesus is a superior high priest because of God's solemn oath. He writes, and inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, so he's using, he's speaking now in negative terms, he means Christ was made priest with an oath. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Here, the writer highlights a profound difference between Jesus and all other priests, and the Old Testament priests, the Jewish priests. He says, first of all, that God appointed the Lord Jesus Christ to the office of high priest by an oath. And you see, what is happening here is that he's still reflecting upon Psalm 110 and verse 4. For the Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He's reflecting on the first part of Psalm 110 where it says, the Lord has sworn, you are a priest. And so he's saying, our Lord Jesus, assume the office of priesthood by an oath of God. We saw in the preceding chapter, chapter 6, the solemnity of oaths. And the writer reminds us in chapter 6 that God, when he made a promise to Abraham, a promise that he was going to bless him, he said, surely that is God took an oath to bless Abraham. And he explains the reason that God swore to Abraham in chapter 6, 17 and 18. Thus, God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. That by two immutable things, that is God's promise and God's oath, by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Whenever God speaks, God speaks truth. And his words are always trustworthy. But in promising Abraham that he will bless him and multiply him, God took an additional step of swearing. He took an oath, a solemn pledge of affirmation and confirmation that he would absolutely bless him. And the reason that God swore was to make it abundantly clear that his promise can never change, that he would accomplish what he had promised, so he swore by himself. The same reality that is of God swearing an oath of confirmation 
lies behind the priesthood of Christ. God took an oath. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. God took an oath in appointing Jesus Christ to be the great high priest. He took an oath to do so to express in the strongest terms possible that he is sovereign and his will of establishing Christ as high priest cannot be changed. This decree of Christ being established as a high priest must be accomplished. But whereas Christ was established as high priest on the basis of God's oath, the Old Testament priests did not come to office by an oath. So that when the Levitical priests were appointed as priests, God did not swear, God merely gave a command. You see something of this in Exodus 28 verse 1, where the Lord says to Moses, Now take Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister to me as priest. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ishtamar. You see, these were appointed by a command of God. And the absence of an oath in establishing the priest of the Old Testament was deliberate because God did not swear in establishing them as priests because his design was that the Old Testament priest should occupy a temporary office that would be fulfilled and replaced by Jesus Christ, the greater and the climactic high priest. So Christ is greater because God has sworn that he is a priest forever, something which he never did when he established the Old Testament priest. And because of this, the writer then draws an implication. Since God has sworn that Christ is high priest forever, it means that he is the surety of a new and better covenant. That's what the writer says in verse 22. By so much, in this way, on this account, much more Jesus has become a surety for a better covenant. In other words, because God has sworn that he will be a priest forever, he's a surety. And what is a surety? It's a legal term. It means someone who stands security for a debt or a loan. You know what it is when you take money, you have borrowed student loan and so on. Oftentimes, your parents have to co-sign. They stand as security or a surety. They are then a guarantor. And here it says that Christ, because he has been appointed as high priest forever, has become the guarantor of a better covenant, a new covenant, a covenant based upon better promises. A covenant refers to the solemn obligation that God has taken upon himself on account of his people. He has committed himself, and he will talk more about this new covenant in chapter 8. But he says, because God has sworn, because God has appointed Christ as high priest forever, he is now the guarantor of a new covenant based on better promises. It means then that he can be trusted, that he will administrate God's will for us, and that this covenant will remain 
effective and unchanging because God has sworn that he is a priest forever. But there is a second basis upon which the writer will argue that Christ is superior to all other priests. Not only did he come to office by a divine oath, but secondly, Jesus is superior to all other priests, and particularly the Levitical priests, because of his permanency. In strict terms, because he continues forever. You will see what the writer says in verse 23. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. When he looked at the Old Testament priests, what he sees is a succession of priests. We know that the first priest, first high priest was Aaron, and that after he served, his son Eliezer succeeded him. And after Eliezer, we had Phineas. In fact, one Jewish writer says that there were 83 different high priests from the time of Aaron until the destruction of the second temple. Others think that that is vastly underestimated. Whatever the number of priests there were, high priests there were in Israel, what we do know is that they were marked by succession. This priest would serve for so many years, he would become old, and he would die. There was always a turnover in Israel, high priesthood, in the office of priest. And the reason that there was succession and many priests was because of this one reality, death. It was the great leveler, the great equalizer. Every man experienced death, including the high priests. But the writer says Jesus is a different kind of high priest because he has no successor. In fact, he continues forever. Right here in verse 23, the writer now is reflecting upon one word in Psalm 110 verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever. And he's saying that Jesus Christ is now this great high priest who continues forever. He continues in his office of high priest forever. This does not mean that Christ did not die. Surely we know that he died on the cross. But he continues forever in his office of high priest after the resurrection. That is, he has the power of an indestructible life. It is the resurrection from the dead that lends permanency and a finality to Jesus Christ in his office of high priest. Jesus Christ continues. They die, but Jesus lives. They are taken away by death, but Jesus lives beyond death. And after death, he continues forever. This consideration of Christ's eternal high priesthood, this consideration of the permanency of his priesthood leads the writer now to a conclusion. A conclusion precisely about the nature of salvation. He says, therefore, he is also able to save to the utmost those who come to God 
through him, since he always lives, to make intercession for them. He says, because our Lord Jesus Christ is unlike human priests, all other priests, in the fact that he continues, he is able to save. And, and by the way, the writer, when he says he's able to save, is not really referring to his ability to save, but that he will in fact save. Because he lives forever, he says, the implication, the conclusion is this, that he is able and will save. As I mentioned in the past, this doctrine of soteriology or of salvation is prominent in the book of Hebrews. The writer begins in the second chapter by telling us that Jesus became a real man and identified fully with his people without sin in order to be a faithful and merciful high priest to make atonement or satisfaction for sins. In very specific language, he tells us in chapter 2 that Jesus suffered death. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone in chapter 2, verse 9. Christ tasted death. It's an expression that meant that he experienced death in all of its fullness. He tasted it. doesn't mean he sampled death. I don't know how that could possibly be. It means he experienced death. And he experienced death for everyone, but the everyone, he continues to clarify, refers to the many sons whom he brings to glory. So in chapter 2, he goes on in verse 10 and says, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. That our Lord Jesus Christ was qualified as a high priest by his obedient suffering to God. doesn't mean he was perfected morally. He's always perfect, and we're going to come to that in a moral sense. But in his office, suffering proved his fitness to be our high priest. He saves because he experienced death for his people. And in chapter 2 again, he saves because he delivers from the power of the devil. He becomes the author of salvation, he says, to all who obey him in five, chapter 5 verse 9. And later on in chapter 9, our Lord saves because he sanctifies his people. He cleanses them from an evil conscience characterized by dead works. And at the end of chapter 9, 28, it tells us that Christ will come again apart from sin, that is, without relationship to sin, that he's not coming to die for sin, but he's coming for salvation for those who eagerly await him. You see, the writer of Hebrews tells us that Christ is able to save by defeating the devil, by cleansing our consciences, by appeasing God, and by coming again and delivering us fully and completely. But he also tells us whom he's able to save. That is, he will save those who come to God through him. And this language of coming to God, prosarchomai, is a term that the writer repeats several times in Hebrews, to draw near to God. We see that in chapter 4, we are told to draw near to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. And it is those who draw near to God 
but draw near to God in, in and through Jesus Christ, whom he saves. It is those who come to God on the basis of his death and on the merits of his work on the cross who are saved. The verse 25 also tells us the reason that he will say. It is because he always lives to make intercession. And the verb there, to make intercession, is present tense. Pointing out that our Lord Jesus Christ does work today. You know, the prophet Isaiah says he will make intercession for the transgressors in chapter 53. An intercession refers to the present ongoing work of Christ in heaven. We saw the Lord Jesus Christ as the great intercessor on earth. When he prayed for Peter in Luke 23 and verse 32, he prays, he says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, that your faith may not be eclipsed, overshadowed, cut off. You see, our Lord is an effective intercessor because Peter, though he fell, was kept from ruin, spiritual ruin. We see Jesus Christ as a great intercessor in John 17 when he prays for his disciples and prays for those who will be saved through them. The Apostle Paul has a delectable statement about our Lord's intercession in that magnificent text in Romans 8, 34. He says, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. You see, there is a twofold aspect to the work of Christ. There is the work of redemption that was finished on earth. And there is the work of intercession that he is now doing in heaven. John tells us in 1 John 2 verse 1, My little children, he tells them, These things are right to you that you may not sin. But if any man sins, he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Just because the term intercession is not used, the concept still is there in the form of advocate. We have one who advocates, who speaks on our behalf, who intercedes for us. Now some have questioned the nature of Christ's intercession. And, and by the way, let's not forget the main argument here, that Christ is superior because he lives forever. He continues, and because he continues, he's able to save, because he lives to make intercession. Now some have questioned this nature, the nature of Christ's intercession, and we do not have time to explore this too much here. But I think that we must not perceive Christ's intercession in heaven as bending down and supplicating, praying to the Father, saying, please, please, you know, save my people and, and forgive them and give them what they need. We need to recognize that Christ's presence in heaven is his intercession. And whereas we may disagree with Charles Wesley and his theology at important points. I believe he got it right when he describes Christ's intercession in heaven. He says this, Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary, 
they pour effectual prayer. They strongly plead for me, forgive him, or forgive their cry. Nor let that ransom sinner die. What I'm arguing is that our Lord Jesus Christ is in heaven today still the crucified Christ. It is not that he is gone into heaven, and I think that some translation might give the impression, at least in chapter 9 of Hebrews, that our Lord Jesus Christ entered into heaven with his blood. And so I think that one translation says that. He entered into heaven with his blood in Hebrews 9 verse 12. But the language there is specific. He enters into heaven through his blood. It is not that Christ has gone into heaven to offer a new sacrifice. The sacrifice that he performed on the cross is done. It's over. It has already been accepted. It can never be repeated. But it is precisely because he's in heaven bearing the marks of crucifixion. He is in heaven still seen as the crucified Christ. And he goes to heaven on the basis of what he has done on earth. And therefore... His blood speaks better things than the blood of Abel because his blood is crying out for mercy while Abel's blood is crying out for justice. It is because he has fulfilled all the will of God, paid for our sins, that he can go to heaven on our account. We need to see the intercession of Christ in heaven not merely or simply as pleading, but as application. He's applying the benefits which he earned for us on earth, he is applying them in heaven. And it is called intercession because even though he accomplished our salvation on earth and every blessing we need, he paid for by his death, he applies them to us in heaven with reference to the will of the Father. You see, there is a economy in the Trinity. There is a relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, where the Father takes the lead, particularly in the matter of salvation. We believe that the entire Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are fully God. There's no inferiority in nature, in essence. But in terms of relationship, the Father leads in salvation. And therefore, though the Son has earned salvation for us, He does not give us the benefit of salvation apart from reference to the Father in accordance with the will and the blessing and the benediction of the Father. And therefore, it is called in heaven Christ's intercession because He applies His benefit to us through the approval with the blessing of his heavenly father, he still, though he is fully God, maintains that relationship in heaven of subordination with regards to salvation. Well, that's much of a mouthful. Two grounds on which the writer has shown us that Christ is superior. First, he's appointed in the office of high priest by an oath. And second, he continues forever. He lives, he's permanent in his being and in his office, and therefore is able to save all who come to God through him because he's interceding even now for them. But there is one more reason in the passage why the writer insists that Christ is superior to all other priests. 
And it is not merely because he's appointed by an oath or that because he continues, but because of his suitable character and achievement. And that's what you find in the remaining verses. In verse 26, the writer says, For such a high priest was fitting for us. That is Christ. Fitting means appropriate and suitable. And the reason that Christ is appropriate, he says, it is because he is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has ascended above the heavens. We're going to try to unpack this very rapidly. Why is Christ superior? He's superior not only because he lives forever, but he's superior because of his own character. And the first thing you need to know about him is that he is sinless in character. First, he describes Christ with three adjectives. Holy is the first. It means that Christ is fully devoted to the Father, fully consecrated to doing the will of God, that he pleases the Father in everything. Secondly, he says, Christ is not only holy, but harmless. Harmless. It means innocent. Without guile. Without the taint of evil. And thirdly, he says, he's undefiled. He's morally pure. He has no touch of sin. Now, these concepts taken together, holy, harmless, undefiled, points to the sinlessness of Jesus. He goes on to say that he's separate from sinners. Though he came into the world, though he had a human body and soul, lived fully, he was morally separate. And because he was morally separate and holy, he has been positionally separated by being taken up into heaven. But the language there is for us to understand that Christ is a far superior high priest because he alone has lived the perfect life, a sinless life. Now, there are those who have difficulties with talking about the perfection of Christ. One of them was the writer A.T. Robinson, not Robertson, A.T. Robinson, who wrote the book, The Human Face of God. And in this book, The Human Face of God, Robinson challenges this notion of the perfection of Jesus. And he says, essentially, to speak of Jesus as perfect is to turn him into a flawless porcelain. He says, talking about the perfection of Christ is to make him into a cardboard Christ. A Christ who lacks movement. A Christ who is rather static. A cardboard Christ. He says, if, if Christ is fully human and was tempted, then he had to have seen sin as more attractive than good. That if Christ was truly tempted, he must have come to a place where he saw sin as more attractive than good. Two quick responses. May not satisfy you, but I'll give them anyway. The first is this. There is no biblical reason to think that 
to be fully human, one has to be a sinner. Can I say that again? There is no biblical reason to think that to be human, one has to be a sinner. Sin was never part of humanity's original nature. When God created Adam and Eve, they were sinless. But we can't assume that because they never sinned in the original creation, that they were not humans until they sinned. They were human because God made them flesh and blood. So Christ does not have to be a sinner to be a human. In fact, it's a good thing. It's the best thing that he was not a sinner because he can't, you can't lead us out of sin if you yourself don't know the way out of sin. Secondly, the scriptures themselves teach us that Christ is sinless. The apostle Paul says, he who knew no sin became sin. That is a sin bearer for us in 2 Corinthians 5.21. The apostle Peter says of him that he did not commit any sin. Here the writer says of Hebrews says that he was holy and harmless and undefiled, sinless. Jesus could, could challenge his critics. He says, which of you convict me of sin? You see, the reason Christ is superior is precisely because he was sinless in his being. All of the Old Testament priests were sinners who committed sin. But Christ never once had to go to God and say, forgive me for my sins. Because he had no sin personally for which he needed forgiveness. Secondly, the reason why Christ is superior is because of his single sacrifice. Not only because of his sinless life, but because of his single sacrifice. And that is what the writer continues to press. He says that the priest offered daily sacrifices. Verse 27, he says of our Lord that he does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. And the point he's making is Christ is different on this other level that unlike the priests, the high priests, who had to offer sacrifices daily for the people and for themselves. This is most pronounced, for instance, in the Day of Atonement, in Leviticus 16, where the high priest, before he could come before God, he had to give an offering to God, a sacrifice for his sins and his family's sins. And then he offered a sacrifice for the people. And only then, having sacrificed for himself and his people, he could bring the blood into the holiest of holies. But Jesus never had to offer daily sacrifices for sin, or even yearly sacrifices for sin. He offered one sacrifice for sin, the sin of his people, and the sacrifice that he offers is himself. You see, on two accounts, he's greater, because he's sinless, and because he has a single sacrifice. A sacrifice not of goats and of calves, but of himself. He did this once. And then in verse 28, the writer sum, summarizes his thought then. He says Christ's superior, superiority rests on the fact that he has been appointed by an oath and that the Old Testament priests were not. For the law appoints as high priest men who, were, who have weakness, 
but the word of the oath by which, which came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected forever. So he's saying Christ is superior, first because he's appointed by an oath, whereas the Old Testament priests were not. Secondly, the Old Testament priests were characterized by weakness, and weakness is pejorative in the sense that it refers to sinfulness, but Christ has been perfected. He was perfect in his being and perfected in the sufferings as a high priest. And so, before we draw to a conclusion, three realities on which he argues that Christ is superior. He was appointed by God's oath, he continues forever, and he is a sinless and effective Savior who offered one sacrifice for sin. Years ago, a young lady left her parents' home and wanted to make it in the world on her own. But through a series of misfortunes, she found herself living on the street. She spent years bouncing from one shelter to another as a homeless person. She slept on park benches, ate at soup kitchens, harassed people on the street for money, and died alone and unmourned. And after her death, someone discovered that she did not have to live as a pauper. Because her parents, whom she had left, became millionaires. And they died before her. And when they drew up their will, before their death, they named her as their only beneficiary. This woman was a millionaire and lived like a pauper. And sometimes I think that as Christians, we live like paupers when we are spiritual millionaires. We don't know the unsearchable riches that we have in having Jesus. You see, that's why the writer says, you can have the whole world, but give me Jesus. Because when you have Christ, you are incredibly rich. Years ago, I think it was Scotia Bank who said, you are richer than you think. And I want to suggest to you that you are richer than you think in having Jesus Christ. Because fundamentally, Jesus is the Savior that you and I, that we need. This is not a Savior who came to office by grasping higher than his station. He did not assume a position that was not given to him. He has been appointed by an oath of God. You are a priest forever. This, this Savior that we need, not only has he been appointed by God, but he has the right qualifications to be priest. Listen, I don't know who you are hoping wins the presidential election, but I think that most people believe that there are questions about their suitability. Whoever wins. You question their fitness to serve in the office of president. But there can be no question asked about the character of Christ to serve as our high priest. Because there was no sin found in him. He was holy and harmless and undefiled and separate from sinners. He pleased God. He rendered complete and perfect obedience to the will of God in every area of life. 
And so he is the best person to represent us. Because you see, if we had a sinner standing before us, he would have been condemned by God. So we needed one who can intercede for us and whose life supports his intercession. Jesus Christ is a sinless Savior. You see, we have the best person in heaven for us. Not only because he's sinless, but because he gave himself as a sacrifice for our sins. He offered himself to God. He took our place on the cross. He bore our sin. He was nailed to the cross. He took and paid with his blood for our sins. And he is the one who reconciles us to God, who cleanses our consciences, who brings us near to God. So we have the Savior that we need, appointed by God, pure in his nature, and self-giving in his sacrifice for our sins. This is the Savior that we need. And we must delight in this Savior, who is a sympathetic high priest, who never ceases to work. You need to know that Jesus has not only gone into heaven as a forerunner, as a trailblazer, paving the way for us. The language in the right of Hebrews is that he's a forerunner. But Jesus is not only the trailblazer, he's our high priest. And what is he doing in heaven? Well, he's not idle. He's working every day, every night, every second, unceasingly for you and for me. He's interceding in heaven. What is he doing? What is his work in heaven? Well, he's there in heaven to defend you against the accusations of the devil. When Satan says, this one should not come into your kingdom because he's unholy, Jesus stands there and saying, but I'm holy for him. He's there in heaven working for you, providing everything that you need. Supplying all your needs according to his riches in glory. He's standing there in heaven sanctifying your prayers and your thanksgiving to God. He's there in heaven strengthening you against temptation and apostasy. He stands there in heaven on your account. And from the fullness and the riches of his being, he's providing every blessing and every grace. The the Dutch theologian Baving tells us he's giving us every grace and every blessing that we need for life and for godliness. You have the right man in heaven. You have the right man on your account. You see, this language of intercession reminds us that we have a friend in heaven. I don't know how you think of Christ, and I don't know how you think of his work in heaven, but you must know that you have in heaven a friend. It was the great theologian, Thomas Goodwin, 1600 to 1680, who wrote, in fact it was a sermon, entitled, The Heart of Christ in Heaven for Sinners on Earth. The heart of Christ in heaven for sinners on earth. And what Goodwin concluded is simply this. That the same Jesus who felt for his people on earth, who cared for them, who loved them, who wept over them, this same 
feeling, sympathetic Christ is the same Christ in heaven representing you. That you have a friend in heaven who because he had a lived experience, because he lived amongst men, because he was fully human, he understands what we suffer. We do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with our infirmities. We have a high priest who can be moved, who can sympathize. And you have in heaven the Lord Jesus Christ who feels and shares your pain, who understands your shame and understands your failings and feels for you because he is on your side. And the glorious truth is not only that he sympathizes, but that he is omnipotent. He's reigning, seated on the throne of glory, having all power to help you, and he will help you. You need to know that you have a friend in heaven, that Jesus is for you. He is on your side. He stands on your behalf, representing you, because of his sheer love for you. You must rejoice in him. If you are an unbeliever, this demands that you must come to God. You must approach God in obedience to Christ, in repentance of sin, in faith in Christ. You must draw near. Listen, there is no neutrality. One either draws near to God or turns aside because of a heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. In chapter 10 of Hebrews 39, one either draws near to God or turns back to destruction. You see, this is a choice that you are faced with. Because you have Christ who died for you on earth and lives in heaven for you, you are drawn near to God, asking him to forgive your sins, trusting in Christ's death to save you. You must not believe and trust in anything that you do, but trust solely on Christ. And if you believe on Jesus Christ, if you receive his death as payment for your sins, you will be saved. Finally and forever. You see, all of us are sinners saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You must come and not draw back because you have one in heaven who calls you. And you, if you are a believer, you must come and keep coming to Christ because he's there for you. You can never come too often. You can never come enough. You ought to come through this new and living way that he has consecrated through the curtain of his flesh. You must come to God for all you need through Jesus Christ who paid for it on the cross. You have more in Christ than you realize. You are richer than you think. Oh, may God help you to lay claim to Christ and to all that he possesses for you, for his grace. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that he is our Savior. And he is our Redeemer. And he is our Intercessor. We thank you that he stands on our behalf. We thank you that he bled for us. And now he stands before your throne in our place interceding. We pray that we might love him and resort to him. 
we might say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Oh, may we be filled up with Christ. May we taste and know his riches and glorify him here and now we pray. For Jesus' name, amen.